Hey everyone, welcome to NASA in Silicon Valley, episode 78. Today we're starting an interesting series of episodes about collaboration between NASA and the U.S. Geological Survey, the USGS. That's a collaboration that's going to grow even more because the USGS Center here in Silicon Valley in Menlo Park is set to relocate and become our close neighbors here at NASA Ames. In this episode, we learned more about what that move is going to make possible in terms of research and why the scientists are so excited for their future work together. Our guests are Ian Brosnan, who's the Special Assistant for New NASA and USGS Science Initiatives, and Colin Williams, the Center Director at the USGS campus in Menlo Park. They told us about how the two federal agencies can do more powerful work working together. We have very complementary expertise. NASA collects a lot of data about the Earth from above using satellites and aircraft, and USGS is really strong in related lab and field work. One example, which will be the topic of next week's episode, actually, is about a NASA-USGS collaboration for tracking wildlife. So just before we get into this episode, don't forget to check out some of the other NASA podcasts, like Houston We Have a Podcast and Gravity Assist. And as always, you can send us your questions and comments on social media. We're at NASA Ames, and we use the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. So without further ado, here are Ian Brosnan and Colin Williams. So we always started off the same way, um, trying to get to know people a little bit better. But Ian, you're kind of like the returning Jeopardy champion. So right. <laughs> we already got to know you. Right. As, and I got a lot of money from that experience. Oh, nice, <laughs> nice. You get the, the Jeopardy challenge right. right at the right time. So for folks who are listening, um, on in our show notes, we'll add a hyperlink to Ian's episode. Great. So you can go through and listen to that and you get to know Ian and all of how he joined NASA, how he joined the area. But we have Colin. Colin from USGS, the US Geological Survey, joining us. Hello. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Colin, of like, how did you end up joining USGS? How did you end up in this area? I was originally a research geophysicist. I studied temperatures in the Earth and the heat flowing out of the Earth. And uh, a great job opportunity came up with the uh, USGS in Menlo Park a number of years ago. And I applied and was fortunate enough to get the job had a very um, interesting and exciting research career, also worked on geothermal energy and assessing mm -hmm. the geothermal energy resources of the United States, and uh, uh, then uh, transitioned into my current management role, where I'm uh, a center director, one of the five centers in Menlo Park. So was it like a lifelong dream as a kid? You're like, one of these days, I'm going to work at USGS? Or, or I'm guessing you grew up always interested in science and stuff? Or I started out as an engineering major and transitioned into the earth sciences and uh, uh, actually did a lot of computer modeling. And uh, part of the computer modeling was, was modeling data that people collected in field studies out on the ocean drilling program and in various parts of the United States. And I realized at some point that uh, while the computer modeling was, was interesting and continued to be part of my research, I really wanted to be out in the field collecting data. And the USGS is one of the organizations that really offers that kind of, uh, of mix. We're very much about going out into the world and observing things and making measurements. So where did that end up taking you? When where did you go out into the field? Oh well, mostly uh, in my career, I've I've focused in the Western United States. Uh, 
kind of the base of operations being being Menlo Park every, you know, the Mojave Desert, the Great Basin out in Nevada, up in the Pacific Northwest, occasionally to Alaska um, and Hawaii, places like that. Every once in a while, other other parts of the U.S. are overseas, but mostly out west. I, I know when you typically think of like the U.S. Geological Survey, the first thing that pop, pops into my brain is like earthquakes, measuring earthquakes mm-hmm. and stuff. Yes. So I'm imagining in the Bay Area tends to be earthquake prone. Have you guys always had a presence in the Bay Area, or like what's the kind of history you're a little bit? Oh well, that? actually, when uh, when the USGS was founded back in 1879. Uh, there year. were <laughs> there were four divisions, and one division was based in San Francisco to help study the gold deposits and oh. the mining in the mother load of the Sierras. Um, not too many years later, the survey management changed its mind and pulled everybody back to Washington, D.C. And for most of the rest of the USGS history, um, operations out elsewhere in the United States were temporary. Um, people would be officially based in Washington, D.C. and travel to Alaska or California Hmm. or Texas or wherever they were doing their field work, maybe set up a temporary office for a period of months or a few years, but always come back to Washington, D.C. That changed with World War II. The USGS got very involved or became very involved in looking for mineral resources, Mm -hmm. addressing other uh, earth science issues that came up in the context of the war effort. Uh, spread itself all across the landscape, and um, USGS management decided after the war to establish major regional centers. And in the 1950s, um, they arranged to establish a center for the West in Menlo Park and brought people together who'd been everywhere from uh, Southern California, Carson City, Nevada, the old Mint building in San Francisco, Mm -hmm. elsewhere, and uh, created a, a major regional center in the Menlo Park campus. And so, for you and Ian, how did you guys end up meeting? Were you guys, like, what's the were connection? Working, yeah, what's the connection? <laughs> Why is the U.S. Geological Survey even on this podcast today? Ah, <laughs> yeah, I think we, we made smooth need to, transition. Yeah, we, we blame John Stock for this one. <laughs> yeah, I think I guess if I understand correctly, for a number of years, there's been an idea that Menlo Park's campus might be um, moved out of Menlo Park at some point, and that NASA would be a good landing point. Uh, so when I came here a little over three years ago, I think that idea was really starting to catch hold. Um, and so Steve Hipskind, who was then a director of Earth Science, asked me sort of look into that and help with an interagency and intercenter team to see how that might be done. And then Colin had a similar role on the USGS side. Um, so I think we probably met in about 2014. Uh, and have been working together ever since, both on the logistics and also on the sort of opportunities to pull the science together. Right, because when when you say NASA seems like a logical place, it's not just proximity and the the geography of it all, right? I assume there's there's scientific logic there too, right? Do you want to tell oh, us about that? Absolutely, and I think the scientific uh, collaboration potential and the history of scientific collaboration, which I think you'll be covering in some of the podcasts uh, that are coming out right, in yeah. in the future, near future, um, was was originally the connection was how that we can, you know, in a period of time in which federal budget has been and probably will be continue to be relatively limited, um, how can federal agencies collaborate, leverage their resources, do better work, do, do more powerful work working together, and in particular, how could the USGS and NASA take advantage of their proximity here between Mountain View and Menlo Park and, and uh, build that collaboration? 
at the same time, we were dealing with a lot of um, facilities issues, facilities costs issues, whether we should stay in Menlo Park or potentially relocate somewhere else. And the opportunity to align those scientific interests with solving some of our facilities challenges and moving in with NASA here at Moffett Field um, was extremely attractive. It's taken a few years, but mm-hmm. um, we're, we're on track to move down here, and we're all really looking forward to it. And Colin alluded to the fact earlier that USGS is in the field quite a bit, and I think that pairing of our looking at the Earth from the vantage point of space or from the air, if we're doing airborne science, and USGS's capabilities as far as ground observations or laboratory capabilities are going to be really powerful. I, mean, I think just recently, space science was interested in talking to USGS about some of their methane clathrate work because the development of those gases trapped in, a, in an ice network actually has a lot of relevance to understanding processes off-world, such as on Pluto. So there's these little like surprises mm-hmm. that keep popping mm-hmm. up as we go through this that makes this incredibly exciting. So I, I guess for folks who are not familiar with the U.S. Geological Survey at all, um, I, I think of NASA in a way where there's, you know, for the most part, it's we're all one NASA, but every center kind of has its areas of focus. Obviously, you think of you know the Kennedy Center where they launch rockets. You know, Houston they train astronauts. You know, we have a whole mix of a portfolio here. I'm guessing is that kind of the same way at, at USGS? Do, is do you guys have different buckets that you kind of like, like deal in? And then if so, like kind of what is the specialties of like of this area? Well, we certainly have different buckets. Um, our disciplinary or um, uh, work buckets are called mission areas uh, in the in the USGS, and they cover things like natural hazards, energy and mineral resources, uh, land use and climate change, ecosystems, and of course water, topographic studies, mm-hmm. uh, for example, and. Uh, so it's Out not here, just earthquakes. Absolutely not <laughs> earthquakes. And in fact, uh, you know, mentioning ecosystems, one of the things that people aren't typically aware of, especially here because earthquakes are such a prominent part of our life in the Bay Area and, and what we know about the USGS, um, is uh, in the mid-90s, we um, merged with what was then the National Biological Survey. So oh, wow. we actually have a very large component in the USGS related to ecosystem studies. And that is, um, uh, it'll be a small group, but it will be a part of what we're planning to move into Moffett Field. Certainly though, in the West, we we focus on natural hazards, earthquakes and volcanoes, landslides, those have been in the news lately. Right. Water resources are a big focus. Uh, in my center, there's work on energy and mineral resources, things from, traditional oil and gas studies and uh, traditional mineral deposits to things that people are concerned about with uh, like what goes in your smartphone, Hmm. Um, uh, rare earth elements, things like that, or uh, innovative um, and renewable energy sources like geothermal energy. Uh, There are remote sensing folks who have a history of actually working very closely with with NASA. And... um, uh, paleoclimate studies, people who hmm. worry about cl- carbon cycling and uh, uh, past records of climate in the Earth. Yeah, interesting. I feel like there are as many surprising things that the Geological Survey does, including biology and ecosystems, as we have here at NASA. People are always surprised that we do space biology and aeronautics and things that are often forgotten. But Yeah, and, and one of the exciting things about collaborating and moving here is the fact that we're always discovering 
new things that NASA as a whole is doing or, or mm-hmm. is things that are being done at, uh, at NASA Ames that we didn't know about and uh, our fruitful directions of uh, collaboration. Of course, like any organization, we're still finding out things that we do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have you had any surprising moments in these discussions when you realized, oh, that's perfect, the Geological Survey does that and we can use it? You know, I think there's, there's been quite a few. Um, I'm trying to decide who want to pick. I mean, obviously, the Clathrates one was, was pretty neat. The methane um, story, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think another one that... What was that one? Was, Say that again. Oh, it was these methane clathrates. Which is this, Cath- yeah. Clathrate, Clathrate, yeah. Methane clathrates just right. rolls off I the know, tongue. Go I on. Yeah. Do tell more. Pray what? tell about the cathrates. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just say it. I mean, it's just soothing. The clathrates. Um, <laughs> it's like triple word score. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's, it's you could also right? say methane hydrate if right. you want. Oh. I recognized methane. Like a commoner. But no, so that's that was one that sort of popped up, um, was a little bit of a surprise to me. I didn't think that would actually be a, an obvious connection. Right. Um, but there are other linked issues. So I think the folks that are working on the Kepler-K2 mission and are thinking about how to communicate those scientific results. So it's not just the science, but how oh. to communicate those results. So the actually, exoplanet hunting mission is exactly. informing... Right. You guys on how to... Well, they're, they're taking things from USGS about how USGS communicates complex hazards. Oh. Right. Oh, wow. And that, that was an interesting kind of, I guess, a surprise for them huh. was to, to see that list of um, seminars. We have this joint seminar list going now where we can see what's happening at USGS and they can see what's happening here. And USGS broadcasts most of the seminars live. So it's actually a fairly simple act for somebody to say, oh, that looks like an interesting topic and just click on a web link at 10 o'clock on a Thursday and listen to that talk. Um, and that particular one was sort of discussing how we communicate complex hazards information, um, which has some obvious you know, corollaries for how do you communicate any complex scientific information to a public audience. Yeah. So, interesting. Yeah. One, one thing that NASA brings to the table that of course is a big attraction to us is all the capabilities in engineering and technology um, and, and the interests. Uh, you know, we we try to stay out of hazardous areas, but mm-hmm. but of course some of our our work, whether it's related to landslide hazards or more particularly, uh, you might consider volcano hazards and active um, volcanic environments. In some ways, they're not dissimilar to what NASA may be looking at in terms of how you send instruments and make measurements in hostile environments off-world. Mm-hmm. And um, there are all sorts of potential alignments where the NASA technologies that are being developed and tested for those sorts of off-world missions could be applied for our on-world missions for uh, volcano hazards or other applications by USGS. So cool. And I remember, it might have been in our conversation, Ian, I I remember kind of like talking, I think it was tagging wildlife, where it was like, it was kind of like understanding how wildlife patterns and stuff, and the, the connection that I made that I didn't really get before is like, you have these satellites floating around, or like, like flying around the Earth, taking all this data, um, but it's kind of like a lot of data over a large area of land. But with some of like the tagging of like like animals, understand how wildlife patterns, or even like how water flows, right? You know how salmon. I think it was the salmon right. reference too. Yeah. But like that's like little granular like points of data. But like combining the big data with the little points, kind of understand the whole a lot better. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think that you know, hopefully that's going to be one of the podcasts that you guys talk about of the folks that have been developing that. Um, and so that, that, again, as Colin said, that pulls together the technology piece about how do you develop a tag that communicates effectively to a satellite? How do you develop a sensor that's light enough and low power enough to actually operate on a small animal? 
um, and then pair that with the satellite data. Um, but then even relatedly, it's what's the architecture of that satellite structure to capture that data, not just um, you know, from the remote sensing perspective, but even to get the information back from that animal if it's out over the middle of the Pacific Ocean or somewhere remotely in the United States. So it's really multidisciplinary, right? It is, yeah. hugely. Yeah. So. Kind of looking forward for you guys working together, um, breaking the fourth wall a little bit. You know, this is mid-January or so when we're recording this. What are you guys looking at at your next steps? How is this, like, you know, is, is a moving truck showing up over to Colin's <laughs> office? You're going to move all your, you're going to schlep all your stuff on over? How's that working out? Well, well, I hope so. The last time I moved on the Menlo Park campus, I moved <laughs> furniture myself, and that wasn't any fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, we're in the process right now of um, renovating the second floor of Building 19, which is in the historic um, uh, district there uh, at Moffa Field. And uh, that will be phase one of our move. Uh, when we're done with the renovation, there will be office space, workstations, and we will move about 200 people from Menlo Park um, into that space as phase one. Phase two, which will take a few more years, is to uh, renovate other space on campus, additional office space, and most important, uh, laboratory space, so we can relocate our Mm -hmm. laboratories uh, down here. And that will involve uh, not only a large number of laboratories, specialized facilities, um, but about another 250 people. I was going to guess, there's probably some big toys <laughs> sitting over there that isn't exactly easily moved or calibrated. Yeah, we've we've got everything from kind of classic uh, biological chemistry labs with fume hoods and sinks and high precision instruments to uh, rock mechanics facilities mm-hmm. with big hydraulic presses or giant slabs of rock that slide past each other. Uh, paleomagnetics laboratory that has to maintain very low-level magnetic fields to study the magnetic properties of rocks. A great diversity of things, and and ideally that's part of what we're we're bringing to the table when we come here uh, for future collaboration. The Earth Science Decadal Survey was just released a few days ago, right? So I think for me, mm-hmm. one of the things I'm most excited about is looking at that um, and thinking about what the things are that we can do together. Uh, I think one of the highlights in that report, uh, speaking back to Earthquake's point, yeah. where there's a community, the scientific community right now is really interested in how do you bring in this sort of observational data, whether you collect it from space or some other system, experimental data that you might do in a lab, um, and the physics-based modeling to really understand how these megathrust faults like Cascadia um, behave, and can we understand the dynamics well enough to do a better job of forecasting hazard risk for society. And I think between you know the supercomputing capabilities that we have here, our history in sure. doing physics-based modeling, all the history and experience that USGS is bringing in terms of both ground observations and experiments in the lab, I think we're going to have a lot to offer the United States and the scientific community going forward. Well, I know even thinking of Ames, one of the things that kind of caught me off guard when I when I first came over here, of how many there's certain. I guess core competencies. I guess that, right. that Ames works on that is applicable to a lot of areas of science, like right. supercomputing, like autonomy. Right. So I would imagine as we start working closer with USGS and stuff, that there's areas where, hey, you can play in this field too. Because I mean, the supercomputing is great for aeronautics. It's great for the astrobiologists. It's right. great for a whole fields where people can take advantage of it. Let alone autonomy. Right. Yeah. No. I think there's a. I mean, it was what eight core competencies. So <laughs> yeah. I think we can probably touch USGS into all eight of those. Yeah. Some level, and and the global reach that NASA <coughs> brings is uh, is extremely valuable as our science um, objectives and scope evolve. Of course, we're the United States Geological Survey, our primary mission, 
and our focus is in the United States and on hazards and resources and ecosystems in the United States. Um, but at the same time, especially with globalization, uh, it's not just an issue anymore of, say, what happens with an earthquake on the San Andreas Fault or up in the Cascadia subduction zone. If there's a major earthquake in China or Japan, um, elsewhere in the world uh, that's got potential to disrupt global hmm. trade and mm -hmm. and uh, you know we know where all our iPhones are manufactured <laughs> for example and being able to extend that uh, global reach is is something that I think uh, uh, will benefit tremendously from the work together between the two well, agencies. Maybe talk a little bit more about you know just the US government agencies within the scientific community at large because I think it's very easy for people to have this idea of the U.S. government as this big monolith that knows all and sees all, but it's made up of a bunch of departments and agencies may or may not talk to each other. Um, so, from the scientific realm, I'm guessing is that I mean that's pretty normal. You go to conferences, like you're reading research papers. You're just kind of like walking in the same circles that like not just NASA, USGS, but like other like. Federal right. agencies, NOAA. yeah, Apple NIST, National Ab Absolutely. And yeah. how, how does that all piece together? How do you typically run into these folks? Because I'm guessing there's not like a club meeting where you all show up and say, <laughs> "We're all the federal scientists. Mm. What are we going to work on?" You Secret know? handshake. <laughs> I know. Um, well, sometimes we try to do that. It doesn't always work very well, but we always keep trying at various levels, whether it's back in Washington or out in field or regional offices, to to build these collaborations. And uh, you know, you mentioned NOAA. We we have a lot of work with NOAA. We have a lot of work with our uh, partner Department of Interior bureaus, like the Bureau of Land Management or the Park Service. Right. But we also do interact on the scientific level, and that's also the avenue through which. Um, we have a lot of interactions, and I know this is true for NASA, with academic partners. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things uh, that, that AIM certainly brings to the NASA table, and we believe uh, our Menlo Park and future uh, Moffett Field uh, campus brings to the USGS table, is the opportunity to connect with Silicon Valley, too, and the technology development and innovation that happens here, as well as the academic scientific research environment that we benefit from with uh, universities like Stanford and UC Berkeley and UC Santa Cruz that are in the area. That makes me think, when you speak of innovation and leveraging this area, we spoke about the international impact. So I imagine whatever you can develop to better forecast earthquakes here in this area, in the U.S., that can be applied elsewhere, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, one of the main uh, areas of uh, development, and I think this is going to be a future podcast, is on earthquake early warning. Cool. And that's uh, a technology and the research supporting that technology that's being developed and implemented around the world. So mm -hmm. maintaining uh, collaboration with, say, the Japanese or the Europeans or the folks in New Zealand um, is very critical to advancing that scientific mission because, of course, knowledge and innovation uh, happen everywhere. Mm -hmm. We were touching on the on the question of interagency collaboration, and and you know, any of us who've worked in the federal government um, for a significant period of time, we bear the scars of trying to make bureaus mm -hmm. and agencies and departments work together effectively. Um, it's not always easy, and one of the best things about this whole process of relocating the 
USGS Menlo Park campus to Moffett Field here and working with NASA Ames has been the, the open and enthusiastic um, perspective and approach that everyone here at Ames has brought to the topic. Um, the people here overall just couldn't be more welcoming and more enthusiastic about building those scientific collaboration and having us um, here in, in what's your place. Awesome. <laughs> Excellent. So for folks who are listening, if you have questions for either Ian or Colin, um, we are on all the social media platforms, NASA Ames. Uh, we're using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley, but also we've decided that we, we've gone a bit old school. We have a phone number that you can call. Uh, that is uh, 650-604-1400. You can call, leave a message or comment, and then we can Go right back to Ian, right back to Colin, and see what kind of, see if they can answer that. But thanks for coming on over. Thank you. Thank you.